Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robots Podcaster. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm Sabine Howard. I'm a senior lecturer, which is equivalent to an associate professor uh, at the University of Bristol here in the UK. Mm -hmm. So you are famous about swarm engineering, but we would like to go first. When you first build a robot, what is your feeling when you build a robot? I've mostly been programming robots rather than building them, although my team now does build lots of, of different and exciting robots. Mm -hmm. So the way I got it into robotics is I was an exchange student, uh, originally studying at EPFL in Switzerland, but then I went to Carnegie Mellon University for my master's year. Uh, and over there, I had the chance of joining Manuela Veloso's uh, RoboCup team. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really where I got the, the bug for robotics. So in her lab, we were programming little Ibo dogs, which were these little these little uh, dogs developed by Sony at the time. Um, mm. And they were, they were programmed to play football. Uh, and so we went to the U.S. championship when I was over there. And they actually won the U.S. championship that year. And just seeing the things that you'd programmed work on a real robot, seeing these robots, you know, score goals. We would be jumping up and hugging and almost mm -hmm. crying when we saw these robots score goals, which sounds a little bit silly now. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that's really where I got the bug for it. And it's not just programming robots, but it's programming robots that work together. Uh, and that's really why I do research on swarm, swarm engineering now. Okay, great. So could you please tell more about your work in swarm engineering to audience? Where do you work at exactly? Sure, my lab engineers swarms. So if you look at, at flocks of birds, they're these beautiful complex systems and they arise simply by having individual agents follow local rules. Um, and, and combining these local rules gives rise to these beautiful dances in the sky. Mm. And there's many features that are interesting for real world applications. So these swarms, are scalable, you can keep adding agents to the swarm and they continue to operate. They're robust, so if any individual fails, theoretically the rest of the swarm should also continue to operate and they can do more than the sum of their parts. So these are features that I thought were really interesting for, for engineering. Uh, and in our lab, we engineer swarms across scales. So part of my team do nanoparticles for cancer treatment, understanding how you know, loads of particles can work together uh, to be more effective, all the way to robot swarms that work in the hundreds uh, for, for things like environmental monitoring, to robots that work in smaller numbers, but the robots are a little bit more capable, and there we're looking at applications ranging um, from warehouse logistics to uh, fire applications. So it's really swarm engineering across scale, from the nano world to the robot world. Nice. So I would like to ask you how you define uh, swarm engineering from perspective. If you look to nature and what you're doing in, in the scales from either from smaller scale or just you mentioned you are looking to having a million of these uh, robots. So how you define swarm engineering from your research work, how, what you're planning to have it, uh, which scale you're planning to have? For me, swarms are systems where you have very simple agents working in large numbers 
just reacting to their local neighborhood. That could be other agents in their neighborhood or it could be their local environment. Uh, and those are really the, the building blocks of what I'm looking for. And then as a swarm, they should be doing more than the sum of their parts. So this idea of emergence, the fact that the behavior emerges from uh, the self-organization at a local level. Uh, but really simple agents, local information, large numbers. Mm -hmm. So you're working in different project I work in nanomedicine and and swarming and robotic as well why you choose to working in this kind of projects especially in cancer and this and they, I think more interesting project about helping others in, in just facing cancer disease or something so that's pretty interesting uh, problem and we would like to hear from you how you can apply swarm to treat uh, malignant tumors what I'm discovering is that there's there's swarms everywhere, uh, and if you take a swarm engineering approach to it, you can start to engineer the collective behavior of these swarms. Mm -hmm. um, this came about because I was a PhD student over in Dario Floriano's lab at EPFL, uh, designing swarms of flying robots. So at the time, we had ten flying robots. Uh, we could throw them in the air. They would do cool behaviors like create communication networks or flocking-like behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was that was ten robots, which is you know it was exciting at the time. But I always thought swarms needed to work in much larger numbers. If you look at ants, they work in huge, huge numbers. If you look at cellular systems, they work in huge numbers. Uh, and so that got me looking for a new agent that might work in big numbers. Uh, and so I got excited about the field of nanomedicine uh, because I had learned that nanoparticles could be modified to change their functionalities, which is basically like changing their behaviors, a little bit like a robot. And because of their tiny size, they work in huge numbers. Uh, so for example, in the scope of cancer treatments, nanoparticles were thought to be useful vehicles to deliver drugs to tumors just because of their size. Um, and these particles worked in, in the 10 to the power of 13, the huge numbers that I was fascinated with. Mm. And I really just Googled, you know, cooperative nanoparticles or swarming nanoparticles. And there's only one lab that came up um, that was thinking about this over at MIT and uh, Sangeeta Bhatia's laboratory. And so I was lucky because I got a, a human frontier science program, cross-disciplinary fellowship to do postdoctoral work in her laboratory. Uh, and that just made me realize First of all, the understanding collective behaviors of things that work uh, at the nanoscale could be useful for biomedical applications. Um, but it got also made me realize how even simple questions would be useful to answer without even thinking of swarming. You know, where do all these particles go in the body? How can we improve them so that they treat cancer better? Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, when you start diving into the nano world, you realize that most biomedical applications deal with self-organization at the nano or the micro scale. So whether you're thinking of antimicrobial resistance and bacterial populations, that's to a certain extent a self-organized system or the immune system, that's to a certain extent uh, a, collective, a collective system that might be interesting to apply swarm engineering to. So that's just opened up the whole realm of, of useful applications of swarm engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, and to a certain extent, diving into the nano world, that's made me change the way I think of the robot world as well, uh, because I think we do have now the capabilities of mass producing smallish robots, you know, on the millimeter, centimeter scale, um, to be very simple, but yet maybe inspired from how the nano world works, being a little stochastic and still giving rise to really useful uh, collective behaviors. So 
that is that crossover between the nano and the robot world is something I'm really, really excited about. And I'm finding that there's similarities um, across them. Interesting. So there's a question uh, here about if we have the malignant tumors, we face a problem in surgery that if the surgeon cannot really get rid of the old tumors. And, and this is a problem I think you highlighted. How you can make sure that the swarm robots or nanoparticles in this case can really get rid of, of this tumor completely 100%? Because it's an issue still, we have it in, in tumors. Uh, so how you can make sure that swarm intelligently can um, get stick to uh, the tumors and get to the roots of the tumors at will in the body? Great, great point. So, so here's just a simple example. One of the first things we did is come up with a simulation, yeah. a computational model, to, to wrap our head around how nanoparticles move through tumors. And we were looking at particles um, that had different sizes, which changed how fast they moved through a tumor. Big particles were slow. Uh, and we looked at particles that could stick to those tumor cells, um, very sticky or not too sticky, mm. um, which is essentially what we call targeting. And we were wondering, depending on how you change the design of the particle, its size and its stickiness, how deep would it go into a tumor tissue? Um, and the goal is, you're right, to kill all the cancer cells, right? Uh, and so as a bioengineer, you might think it's a great idea to design a particle that sticks really well to mm. cancer cells yeah. because then the cancer cells eat them up and then they can kill that cancer cell. But actually... In our models, if you look at what all the particles are doing, what the swarm of particles are doing, well, typically you inject them in the bloodstream, they arrive through the body in the bloodstream, and then they leak out into a tumor. And these sticky particles, when they leak out into the tumor, they would all stick to the first cells they encounter mm -hmm. in the tumor tissue instead of going deep mm -hmm. into that tumor. So actually, what a bioengineer might have thought was a really clever particle um, was really poor in terms of the collective behavior because all the particles were killing the same cells. But if you start thinking of, of better strategies, for example, let's prevent the particles from sticking until they've gone deep into the tumor, so, and then maybe have them stick by activating them using light or magnetic fields. Mm. Um, or even if you make them less sticky, which is counterintuitive, maybe they can distribute better over these tumor tissues and actually kill all the cancer cells. So that's just one example where we're only looking at two parameters of the particle design. So unlike robots, we can't program these particles, but we can change their size and their shape and their stickiness and their materials, um, which you can use lasers or magnetic fields to activate. Um, you can change the drugs they're loaded with. So we can change lots of things on their design, and that changes their behavior. That's essentially how we program them. Mm. And here we showed that two things that we could change, the size and the stickiness, completely changed the way they distribute in the tumor. Um, so we're really what we're trying to do is answer some of these simple questions and then trying to have more clever behaviors where maybe these particles can make a decision about a state of the tumor a little bit like bees make a decision about their next nest site or maybe they can create trails like ants as they create trails to their, um, to their food sources. So. You know, we're starting simple so that we can be useful for the biomedical field now, but then ultimately we want to have these cleverer solutions, these more emergent solutions that could give us even better outcome. That's very interesting. Uh, I would like to ask at this point about whether these nanoparticles could be autonomous. I mean, can really per perceive where the tumors and, and based on this perception, we can reorganize their 
a decision I have to create a certain shape and reach this point though I don't know if you uh, have any thoughts about this part because I, I think in tumors the different tissue sizes is something like a prostate tumors or brain tumors is this can be applied to any kind of tumors or has that a limitation to be applied so it is very tumor specific so with our biomedical uh, and our clinical collaborators we, we do need to know specifics of what tumor they're looking at, how these drugs arrive, what percentage arrives in the tumor, you know, how many cancer cells are there, what drug treats these cells, and at what dosage. So we do have a lot of behind-the-scenes, nitty-gritty detail that is important so that we have realistic values that come out of our simulations. So this is actually part of a big European project called EvoNano, mm -hmm. uh, which is all about using artificial evolution, which is which is a form of machine learning to design nanoparticles in simulation before we test them in reality. Yeah. And a large part of that is is getting validation and numbers from uh, from the clinical crowd and uh, working with in vitro devices, so little tumors on a chip, and microfluidic devices so that we can see where particles go and understand how to model mm -hmm. uh, their dynamics better. And, and in terms of these particles being autonomous, um, I kind of think it's helpful to make the parallel to the robot world. So in the robot world, we want things to sense their environment, to act on their environment, and to move mm -hmm. in a more or less controllable way uh, and, and have some level of computation. Um, in the nanoparticle, the robots, well, in this case, the particles, can sense their environment by reacting to chemicals or cancer cells in their environments uh, through the, the binders on their surface. They can act on the environment by releasing something, for example, the drug that would kill a cell. Um, that thing they release could actually trigger another nanoparticle. So all of a sudden we have communication between the particles. And although we can't tell the particles to go left or right usually because they are being passively moved through the through the fluids in the body, we can have them self-assemble and disassemble, which causes them to speed up or slow down, which is you know a form of left or right, except it's more of a speed up or slow down or stop or go. So we actually do have a lot of controls um, on the way these particles, on these way these particles interact, and some of these smart materials could be seen as a form of computation where something activates the particle and it releases something else in its environment. So mm -hmm. I feel like we have the building blocks actually that we need to make more intelligent collective behaviors. Yeah, that's great. So I would like to ask you what kind of questions that have to be asked for swarm engineering community that haven't been asked yet. Something you think we have to focus on to improve the swarm engineering behavior. Do you, do you think there's a questions had it been asking yet? To get these systems into the real world. I think so far we've been, been focusing a little bit on the nano side of what my lab does. So far we've been focusing a little bit on what the nano side of my lab does. Mm. Um, there's also a large uh, portion of my lab that works on larger scale robots. Um, so robots in the centimeter sized uh, and larger. Um, and, and there, for us, the key challenge in swarming is actually getting them into the real world. Mm. Most swarm research is lab-based, and I think there's a very good reason for that. It's taken time for us to even be able to build up swarms like the Kilobot swarm from Harvard uh, mm. that functions in the thousands. Uh, it's taken time for us to have the proper hardware and algorithms. But now I think we're at a point where we need to see these swarms move out into the real world. 
Um, and along with that, we need to make sure that we do it in a responsible way. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I lead a, a nonprofit called RoboHub.org, which is about con connecting the robotics community to the public. Mm -hmm. But increasingly, I think we need to connect the public to roboticists to That's hear what point. it is they mm. want us to be designing. Mm. And so um, my newest PhD students, what they're doing is before they even start doing a technology development, they go and they do a use case study and talk to real potential users of swarms mm. to mm. see what they care about. Um, so this summer we were running use case studies with firefighters to see if they would benefit from swarms. We were running use case studies with people who do bridge monitoring and inspection. Um, and we were doing use case studies with people who look at swarm warehouses or logistics. Um, and it's, I, it's exciting because they are excited, which mm -hmm. is something we weren't sure about. Um, it's exciting because I think we're at a stage where the technology is actually right for us to translate these solutions to the real world. Um, but it's a challenge because it hasn't been done. And yeah. so that, that is one of the key focuses in our lab now is to actually have people see where swarms can be helpful with them. Um, and along these lines, this week we're running an escape room. Mm -hmm. uh, have you ever done an escape room? Yeah, on Twitter, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's called Swarm Escape. Yeah. Um, it's, it's worked by uh, one of my PhD students, Daniel. And it's essentially an, an escape room where you learn about swarming. And of course you have 45 minutes or so to break out of this environment. And we're really just trying to get to the stage where people know what swarming is and can imagine themselves using it in their real world applications. Mm. Um, so we hope that we'll gather loads of other ideas in which people think swarms will be valuable and also not valuable um, mm. so that we avoid doing things that people just find um, you know, reprehensible. That's very fascinating uh, way of thinking. So yeah, I think now we can go for more questions about the swarming you do, robotics you do. It, as you highlighted, nature is, is less sensitive to individuals, but I don't know in, in you, when you develop this swarming uh, behavior, if you just, how you can make it near from the nature behavior, like a flux of bird or something. It's something, I don't know how you think about it, how you can make it more to the real behavior in the nature. We have two ways of designing swarms. One is bio-inspiration. Mm -hmm. And in the case of bioinspiration, sometimes we're lucky and we have rules from biologists like flocking or trail formation in ants or decision making mm -hmm. in bees. Um, but that really narrows down the applications we can do because we're limited by the behaviors that are found in biology. So I'd say the key principles of swarming are what inspire us in most of our work. And then often we need to find a set of rules for the swarms that is fit for purpose. And so it might be very different than things that the biological systems do. Mm. Um, I should say, we, we, so we have a thousand robots. We have some of these kilobots originally designed by Harvard, but we've built um, a version of our own here in Bristol. And having these thousand robots here makes us think of, of swarms that work in huge numbers, which I think are much closer to the nano and the micro systems, mm -hmm. cellular systems where things diffuse, which means they move randomly, they react to local environments, um, they can bind and unbind a little bit like my particles moving through tumor tissues. And, and to a certain extent there, there's a whole bio-inspiration in how these stochastic systems work and how they give rise to interesting distributions, which is also very much inspired from what we're seeing in the nano and the micro scale. Mm. Um, and then there's a different way of designing swarms, which is not bio-inspired, other than the inspiration mm. from swarming. And that is using exploration. Mm. So exploration could mean an engineer guessing the rules 
which typically doesn't work so well, but sometimes people are lucky. Mm. It could be crowdsourcing where loads of people are guessing the rules. Or it could be, and this is what we're doing increasingly, doing machine learning. Uh, in our case, we use artificial evolution to automatically design rules for swarms that give us a desired swarm behavior. And that desired swarm behavior is usually the application we want to do. So it could be create a communication network, or it could be help the firefighters sense this environment. That's a, that's a collective behavior that we want our swarm to do. Um, and it's interesting because we have uh, Simon Jones, one of my yeah. PhD students, along with Matthew Studley and Alan Winfield, uh, has been looking at how we should represent this evolved program. You read them out and under, you know you can understand what they're doing at the individual level. And we find that this is something that's going to be more and more useful going forward. And it's it's to the extent where you know you have an application, you can evolve these behaviors. And typically that used to be done on a computer that was separate from the robots. And you would take the best program and put it on the robots after the fact. Now, Simon's designed a new swarm called the Teraflop Swarm, where you can do this evolution on board the robots so that, and, and this is, you know, here we're talking about smaller numbers of robots, nine robots, not the thousand with the kilobots. Mm. So these are fewer robots, but much more capable computationally and with respect to their sensors. And all of a sudden, because of the increasing computational power that we have and the better hardware that's available, we can evolve swarm behaviors on board the swarm so that they can go from not knowing how to swarming uh, not knowing how to swarm to swarming in a specific application scenario within 15 minutes so mm -hmm. um, so that's 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 pretty exciting in terms yeah. of you know if you were to send a swarm to space and they had to figure out how to do their job um, they can maybe do it this way that's interesting though so that's the point of how they can know uh, the operation, how you can define, uh, or in other terms, how, how would, to which extent these swarm robots are intelligent, and how you can define intelligence from your perspective and your research? What, what is That's what is the key element? Fascinating question. I'm really fascinated by the number game. Mm. So if you have few individuals, then you, to a certain extent, give more intelligence to the individual robots. These individual robots could evolve a controller on board directly. They had more sensors. They could move in a more precise way. Um, they were closer to the, you know, the few robot systems, single robot systems that we see being deployed in real-world application. And to a certain extent, that's the way people think of robot systems that are very capable, that are very predictable, mm -hmm. um, that do what you expect and have been carefully engineered, a little bit like an airplane, yeah. uh, to be perfect. And so, you know, if you have few numbers of robots, that makes sense to do. Mm -hmm. um, but likewise, if you have huge numbers of robots, if you have thousands of robots, you no longer need to be that intelligent at the individual level. Your, mm -hmm. your robots could fail. Um, they could just move randomly, and if there was a thousand of them, they might do as good a job in terms of the speed of cover in an area, for example, as a you know a few robot system that's more capable at the individual level. Um, and and the intelligence in those systems is is not on the individuals; it's on the collective. So mm. the intelligence is at the level of the swarm. And I think it's really interesting to understand where these trade-offs are. When does it make sense to have maybe um, you know? Let, well, let, let me give you an example. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you think of a farm field, 
mm. a kilometer by a kilometer farm field. Well, if you were to design a robot to plant seeds, you could make a small swarm or even a single robot that zigzags systematically over that farm field and plants seeds one after the other. That's one way to do it. And in that case, your individuals would be very intelligent because they would need to know how to, you know, how to plan their navigation through that environment. Hmm. They would need to be able to sense something. They would need to maybe have GPS. They would need to predict where we're to plant the seeds. So maybe something a bit sophisticated at the individual level. If you had a swarm of 100 million robot seeds that were biodegradable, were essentially little bubble bots. Hmm. Actually, this is much closer to the way the nano and microsystems operate. You could deposit these seeds in the middle, hmm. and they could distribute over that farm field and plant themselves. So that's a very different type of robot where the individuals are essentially just seeds in a water bubble that can do random motion maybe. Mm. Um, but the collective behavior is the same as with uh, in terms of the output in that you've planted a, seed, a farm field uh, mm. full of seeds. So th there's a number game. And figuring out where it makes sense to do one versus the other is something that we haven't yet cracked. And I think we need to understand because it helps us understand where swarms are helpful compared to other single robot systems. Oh. Yeah, that's very interesting. So I would like to ask you also about if you uh, think about applying emotions as well for swarm behavior. Do you think they have emotion? I don't know how, how the bird flock of birds, uh, they create different dancing as you highlighted. Is there is emotion in this part as well or just, I don't know, how, how do you think about this part? Oh, emotion? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think there's beauty in watching them do something, anything. Yeah. One of my uh, students, Danny, in collaboration with James Sharp's lab over in Barcelona, was looking at morphogenesis. Mm -hmm. So how can a swarm of 300 of those kilo size, kilobot robots, of kilobot robots, so those coin-sized robots, mm -hmm. how can they grow a shape? Mm -hmm. A bit like uh, organs develop through embryogenesis. And there's something really magical in watching the swarm go from, you know, a disk of densely packed robots to something where patterns emerge like spots a little bit like the spots that you see on animals in nature and all of a sudden you see these limbs grow and then you can chop the limbs off and they regrow or you can split the swarm and itself heals there's something very organic and beautiful uh in in how these these systems mm. operate so you know looking at it generates emotion in us and so on the back of that um Merhan, in collaboration with Paul Odad, is now mm -hmm. thinking of how we can make expressive swarms. Mm -hmm. Essentially, these kilobots um, have LEDs, so there are grids of pixels, if you think of them that way, where every robot is a pixel. And we're exploring different ways in which the human can interact with that swarm. So can they you know, use the shadow of the human on the swarm to be able to reprogram them or to paint on them a little bit like a robotic canvas? But likewise, can the swarm, because she was projecting an image on it, which was a sunset, which was really, it's a really beautiful little demo mm -hmm. that she's, she's developed. She just, uh, she submitted it to Roman. Mm -hmm. um, and seeing that image on the swarm, where every robot is a pixel, made us realize that maybe that swarm could express something. Mm, that's nice. I see, uh, yeah. So that's something that we're all starting to explore. Yeah. The next question about, uh, do you think that swarm uh, robotics can reach a singularity when they can develop new shapes of dancing. Do you think this could happen? They can develop new strategies uh, to, to develop certain shapes? So we're always 
designing new ways of swarming. Mm. Uh, so that's part of why we use artificial evolution, to do it automatically. Um, so I think we'll always find different ways of designing swarms. Um, I see this very different as the singularity, because in my mind, we have full control over these systems. Mm. Uh, and even if they're using machine learning to develop them, um, you know, we are implementing these algorithms. And because we're making them human understandable, we can read them out and figure out if they fit in terms of the types of swarms that we want. Um, we, we're just writing up a paper on safe swarms now to understand, you know, how we can make sure that these swarms operate in a way that's that's safe mm -hmm. for use in the real world. Um, so it's things like not only looking if the robot is safe, if but also, uh, or if the robot is hackable, but looking if the swarm behavior itself is safe, or looking if the swarm behavior is hackable, or looking if the swarm behavior is ethical, and is there a good way in which the user can interact with it um, so that it has confidence that it has control over that swarm system. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're still very early days in terms of seeing swarms leave the lab, uh, and so I think we still have a long yeah. way to go before they do things that are, that are out of uh, the realm of what we want them to do. Yeah, okay. So do you think that simulation can really run uh, this kind of millions of uh, nanorobotics? Do you think we reach the level that we can do that uh, decision through simulation first before going to real application? Do you think? So? I, think yeah. I, I think it's the only way. Mm. Uh, when you're dealing with that huge number of robots, there's no way of wrapping your head around what they will do unless you simulate them. Uh, and so whether it's nanoparticles and understanding where they go in, in a tumor tissue or whether it's robots that are being deployed over a bridge uh, mm -hmm. to inspect it, simulations are hugely useful for us to just wrap our head around emergent behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, we don't really think in terms of emergent behaviors. And for everything that has to do with automatic discovery, so artificial evolution of swarm rules, that involves loads and loads and loads of simulations so that we can tease out the best parameters over time that give us the best programs. Uh, simulations are hugely instrumental to us. Mm -hmm. So what are the challenges that faces you currently in, in smart engineering research that you would like really to solve? Something is really challenging for you. So I think it's really, it's, it's this idea of getting swarms in the real world. Mm. It's what is the right robot that is actually going to make it viable to do environmental monitoring where you have huge numbers of robots maybe lighting up in a water source to tell you the state of that water source or exploring a huge disaster scenario looking for for victims. And mm. I, I think it's, it's challenges in what the users want and understanding that. It's challenges in how does the human interact with the swarm and read information out of the swarm. Because you're programming individuals to give rise to global behaviors, typically you don't have this central control that you would have in other robot systems. Uh, it's all decentralized. And so we need clever ways of, of interacting with such, such swarm systems so that we, we have confidence in what they're doing and we can even maybe uh, modify the way they behave on the fly so that we can direct the swarm to one area to search rather than another one in a rescue scenario. Mm -hmm. um, it's understanding what materials make sense. If you have loads of very simple robots, maybe you need these robots to be biodegradable. So there's a whole materials challenge question. Yeah. Um, it's, it's exciting because I think we could make swarms very, um, very organic, actually, mm. if we design them well, which, which could make them biodegradable and safe and, and uh, able to explore large environments. Uh, but these are all research questions. And they're also very interdisciplinary research questions, which is super yeah. fun. 
Uh, on the nano side, I think we need to do more of what we're doing, which is thoroughly explore the design space of, of nanoparticles to start out with, but it could be drugs, it could be a number of other small agents that work in large numbers so that we can help in the near term explore how simple changes to their design change, how effective they are in, in uh, cancer applications. But increasingly, can we make these systems um, more intelligence, and we're, we're actually starting to see this in vivo, where some particles activate other particles, which cause an amplification in drug delivery, or particles self-assemble or disassemble to change the way they move through a tumor. Um, so we're starting to see this, and I think we could start to be you know, designing more clever solutions, and that is more on the realm of lab-based work, uh, rather than things that will translate tomorrow, but I think it's the next frontier. Oh, that's great. So what is the current uh, interesting project you are running right now? The project. Oh, that's like asking me to choose a favorite baby. No, I really, I really love all the things we're working on. Okay. Um, so it goes along this full spectrum. And I think what's really fun is often PhD students come up with their own PhD project here mm -hmm. in the UK. Um, so it's, it's been really nice to see what questions people come up with, which are things that I hadn't necessarily thought of. One of our students is looking at sensors for underwater robots inspired from fish and is working with fish biologists to, to wrap his head around what fish actually use. Um, and these are just new, new questions that I haven't thought of. And it's really fun to be in research in mm. such an interdisciplinary field. Um, and in an area like swarming, which to a certain extent applies across all the scales to living systems, artificial systems, because there's just a world of questions to ask. Uh, do you think there's a problem about speaking different language because you're working in different spectrum? Do you think this is challenging or a problem to work with different uh, um, aspects in the research, especially when it comes to interdisciplinary research? I think it's like moving countries, where oh, okay. if you've moved once, then it's easier to move the next time. Mm -hmm. uh, so going from from swarms of flying robots to nanoparticles in a wetland was yeah. my move even though I keep one overarching theme, which is the swarm engineering. But I've had mm. to learn a new language going into the wet lab, learn about cancer, learn mm. about nanoparticles, actually remember my basic high school chemistry so that I could pipette stuff and figure out the right ratios. Um, but once you do this, you, you kind of know that you can do it, mm. and then you do it again and again. Mm. Um, and I think there is something to be said for being cross-disciplinary. So that is somehow sitting between fields and understanding both both fields at a level that's useful um, rather than sitting in one discipline and just collaborating, which is also very valuable, but it's sometimes nice to sit in the middle because you can maybe see commonalities across these different fields that others might not. So it's a challenge. It's for sure different languages, but at the end of the day, mm. uh, you know, there's a lot more in common than there is that separates us. Yeah. So what is the most promising project have been done so far by other groups uh, in SOARM engineering? You think it's really promising as well. I mean, I've been really excited by work by Radhika Nagpal's lab. I mm. was lucky to go to her lab when I was in, in Boston. So I was I was doing this nanoparticle cancer research over in Sakita Bhatia's laboratory. And every week I would go to Radhika Nagpal's lab um, for a robot fix uh, so that I wouldn't completely be disconnected. And just seeing everything that she's been working on and, and how it's been impactful. I mean, she had the Kilobots, which was this first you know, 1,000 robot swarm. It's actually 1,024, mm -hmm. so instead of the Kilobit, it's Kilobot. Um, looking at the Termes project and really high-impact publications in science. And I think that just made me realize that, um, you know, 
if you work hard and you set a hard problem, it is achievable and it is impactful and people care about it. Uh, so it's, mm. yeah, I've just been really impressed by the work she's done in her lab. Great. So yeah, I learned something at the beginning about that you care about how people perceive swarm engineering and you, that's why you have case study. So how do you see swarm engineering uh, in the industry? Is there any sector interested in applying this kind of technology to, to certain applications since it has a potential to many applications in our daily life? You know, it's funny because when I started my PhD on swarms of flying robots, I thought no one would hire me having done work in flying robots. And by the end of it, yeah, all the drone companies were spinning off and it was a thing. Mm. Then I went into, you know, and then in swarming, same, you know, very lab-based, people aren't going to be interested. And actually what I'm finding is people are knocking on my door now from industry because mm. they see robots work at the individual level. They see that for the application they have in mind, it requires many, many robots to work together. And, and all of a sudden swarming is becoming a thing. Um, so this whole question about warehouse logistics came came because people were interested in swarming applied in, in the industrial sector. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think we're only going to see more of that as people realize they need more than one robot to do the job. Great. So do you think if your student come after a PhD and want to start a startup in, in swarm engineering, what do you think the key elements... I think now is actually the right time startup. to be spinning out these companies. And I do hope some of my students come away with some of the ideas they've done in their project and do build up a company. I think what we need to do to make these these startups successful is demonstrate that swarms are useful. So just as an example, I'm advising a startup company called Sampler based in London, mm. and they're all about doing construction of brick walls uh, using robot swarms. And it's really taking the selling points of swarming and applying them to in, in the real world in a way that business understands. So you know the fact that because you're doing multi-robot systems, your robots can be simpler and cheaper. The fact that you can keep adding robots to the system and that could improve the speed at which these brick walls are, are built. The fact that if one of the robot fails, the, the rest of the swarm will continue to operate. So it's, it's more robust and it will mm-hmm. allow you to complete your project on time. Uh, so these are really all the questions that that we need to answer so that business is confident that this is the right solution for them because it scales, because it's robust, because it can do more than what their current systems can offer. Uh, and I think we have the burden in the Swarm community of, of demonstrating this, of showing them that mm. Swarm solutions are realistic in real-world settings. And I think there's also the opportunity to make Swarms maybe more usable out of the box because mm. we engineer them to be simple. Uh, maybe we don't need very sophisticated plans about the environment where they're deployed because they are reacting to their environment. And I think there's also something that maybe swarms can do really easily that other systems may not be able to. That's interesting also. So um, I would like to ask you about uh, whether uh, how we can engage uh, the public in swarm engineering and make that feel that it's really a solution for the life in the long run. What's your thought about that? The best thing we can do is show them robots that work, uh, mm. help them see in their daily lives and their daily work uh, that a swarm solution makes sense. Um, and I think also imagine other applications like the biomedical field where they might not know that these are you know collective behaviors or swarm engineering technologies, but where it's having a real impact on their on their well-being. I think the best thing you can do is show them the reality of it, and then they will be able to judge um, more effectively without all the hype and science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, I think we need to help people imagine where swarms might be useful so that we can get feedback from them. 
So I mentioned earlier on the use case studies we're designing where we ask users, um, you know, would you want a swarm? Do you want to be able to control it? How many robots? What applications should these swarms be doing? What tasks specifically? These are the types of questions that help us get to the bottom of where swarms would be seen as helpful. Um, there's, there's also sort of an open-ended question of what people think of swarms. Mm. Uh, and we did a lot of work on public perception uh, when I was part of the Royal Society's working group on machine learning. And there we were looking at public perception of the word machine learner, of machine learning in general, and just 10% of people knew what machine learning was. So I can only imagine how small a percentage of people know what swarming is. Swarming is. Mm. I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of communicating about swarms, giving examples of swarms, listening from the public what it is they want from this technology. And I hope that this week at the Swarm Escape Room, yeah. uh, we'll get... And I hope that this week with the Swarm Escape Room, we'll get even more insight about what people think would be useful. Interesting. So I would like to ask you here about how you think about the future of swarm robotics. If it's just come to, oh, I think it will be in this certain uh, um, strategy or how will how your thoughts about the future of swarm robotics? Do you think that a new research you have to work inside of intelligence of the swarm or just enhancing their morphological shapes? What's your thoughts in, in the future sometimes if you had in your mind? I think it could be anything. It could be, you know, what materials should these swarms be built in? Is there potential for biodegradable robots? Um, can we think of more nanomicrosystems in the biomedical field or synthetic biology as swarms that can be modeled and then controlled or engineered? Mm. Um, can we automatically design swarm rules using more clever forms of machine learning? How can we make these understandable? And it's not just the understanding the individual level mm. uh, behaviors, but understanding the swarm behaviors that are emergent. Um, it's making sure these swarms are safe and usable by humans in an intuitive way, and then it's getting them in the real world. So um, we've got work to do. Mm -hmm. So do you think that there's something related to regulation of using swarm robotics that have to be considered? Um, do you think any regulations should be highlighted for using swarm engineering? Usually regulations are, are domain specific, so mm -hmm. it'll depend on the applications in which these swarms are used. For example, at the nanoscale, um, we're looking at particles that would have to go through some form of, F of FDA approval, and to a certain extent that pipeline is very well defined. Um, so there's there's nothing really new there that needs to be invented today for us to be able um, to to validate uh, our our nano approaches. Um, at the larger scale, if you're looking at robots to sense a water source, for example, then there's regulation around what can operate in water. Um, if you're looking at swarms of aerial robots, then there's there's regulation around drones. Um, so I, th I think there is a lot in place already that we can work with um, to get swarms into reality. Uh, I think we'll have to see. I don't. Yeah, we'll have to see in specific application areas if that covers enough, and then and then we'll have to adapt something in terms of regulation. Right. So now for more philosophical questions, do you do you think that you are a successful researcher? Do you think ego is important in your research to convince the community how swarm engineering is boring? Do you think ego is important in this case? No, I hope I hope it's not important. I think it should be really about the collaborative aspect of the of the research and how all the different parts fit together. Um, 
it's very hard to do this research on an individual level because it requires all these different disciplines and this bigger level thinking. And so rather than having more ego, maybe we need less ego so that we can be more collaborative and work towards a common goal. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I think you need confidence and you need to believe in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then it is worth really you know, hearing out other people and what they work in and what they care about because you'll discover really interesting problems and solutions that go with them, uh, probably more so than if you're going ahead uh, on your own. Uh-huh. So have you ever designed a robot and you have it in your home, uh, something you were testing in daily basis and ended up choosing in your home, this question? I don't know if I, you have... I used to... So I teach a course called Bio-Inspired Artificial Intelligence yeah. here at the University of Bristol, which is based on a course that I used to TA for, given by Dario Floriano over at EPFL. And as part of that course, uh, we would have to reprogram Roombas mm-hmm. to clean up dust more efficiently. Yeah. And they could, you know, they could either do a neural network-based uh, solution or a behavior-based solution uh, for the controllers. Few people know they can ha- hack their own Roombas, but you can. Uh, mm-hmm. You can make them go much faster, actually, if you, if you do hack them. Um, so we have this competition every year. And so I'd bring the Roomba home to work on the the projects on the exercise for the class that I was TA but really what this robot was doing is it was vacuuming my house every weekend um and then the one day before the course with Daria was presenting the robots to the uh, to the class for some reason he opened the compartment with all the dust yeah in my house because I guess he was showing the sensors and the actuators yeah. of the robots oh and by the way here's the dust bin <laughs> and so the dust just came flying out and I think he was secretly stealing the robots to clean his house too so I'm not sure he knew if it was the dust from my house or from his house that's so that's that's the one robot that I've had yeah that's great you know, more usable in my house which is kind of sad I'd love to have way more robots at home <laughs> Great. So, um, as a leading female researcher, do you think that you faced something like gender disparity? Do you think we still have gender disparity in general, in in general politics field, or how do you perceive this current uh, um, in in the community? How you how you see it? I feel like I've been very lucky, mm. and that's. I've never felt there was a barrier to me progressing in my field. I've had very good supervisors, um, Mm. whether it's Dario, or whether it's Radhika, or whether it's Angita over in Boston, um, and very good, you know, role models and mentors who have always helped me progress. Mm. Uh, And I'm maybe a little bit naive in that way. Okay. Um, But I don't feel like I've been held back. And Mm. so just as a note of optimism, Mm. Uh, for those who are wondering if they should get into the field, get into it because you can do it. Um, that being said, n- now being a bit more senior academic, you, you see that there are less women and that when you go for very big grant applications, sometimes it feels like you need to fight a little bit more to get those big mm. uh, dollars. And yeah. so, um, but I think that's changing. I think that is really changing. And what we're trying to do is build a community of people who can support other women in robotics. Mm-hmm. Um, so Andrew Key over at Silicon Valley Robotics one runs the Women in Robotics Slack channel, which which uh, you're very welcome to join. So it's on Slack, and Thank we just you. chat about things that are happening. And there's also a new nonprofit organization around women in robotics. I know IEEE does wonderful work yeah. around women in robotics, as well as you, Marwa. So it's been really yes. great to see the workshops that you've helped. Thanks so uh, much. Organize. And every year at Ada Lovelace Day, we, we feature yeah. 25 to 30 women in robotics you need to yeah. know about. So we've been doing this for many years, and we already have. Uh, we featured 150 women. So it's not a ranking or uh, mm. 
yeah, our competition. It's really just a way for us to feature wonderful role models. And it's not just in academia. There's mm. wonderful women in startups and policy and ethics. Yeah, it's a great and way. It's yeah. exciting to see. Yeah, there's still a lot of work to do to get more women in robotics. But mm. um, if you are a woman in robotics, just do it because it's exciting. Great. So as you're a PhD supervisor, what are the main qualities you're looking for as a student? Is it about skills or, or about how they sort? What is the criteria looking for uh, as a student to be part of your research? It's, it's, mostly, it's mostly motivation. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I like students who know what they want to do that are excited about a specific area. Um, most people come in not having the skills for their PhD. They will learn on the go, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, and and I do care that they'll work hard at it. Uh, work work hard, not being the number of hours, uh, yeah. but just be passionate about something that they're aiming to achieve. And usually that goes a long way in terms of doing a good PhD. Uh, I think I also value students who who listen and are willing to have conversations and to think outside of the bo- bubble or outside of what they think they know, because uh, just that critical thinking is really essential in terms of getting new ideas. Mm-hmm. So lastly, what is the best advice that was given to you and was like life changing for you as a researcher? And you think it's be important to share with uh, our audience? Something is really was important advice in your life as a researcher as well. Ralph Andrea, when he was over visiting uh, Boston, gave a talk, and after that, I was I was telling him about my applications for mm. faculty positions, and I was you know telling him about my cross disciplinary background and he said what's helpful to have is an area of expertise but then you can apply it in whatever way you think is useful so that's that's sort of where this notion that swarm engineering is my expertise and i can apply that to the nano scale or the robot scale um, that's been quite liberating but it's also really helped put my expertise forward so sometimes it helps to know how to make your expertise known and to build on that going forward as a career great so if there's any final words you would like to share this uh, soft robotic community because I think uh, swarm engineering maybe go hand in hand with uh, soft robotics. So is there something you would like to add final words? Soft robotics is really relevant for swarming because as we make huge numbers of simple robots, they will need to be soft and biodegradable. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a huge need from the, the soft robotics community to help us design better robot swarms. I think it's also interesting to think of the swarm as a soft robot. Mm. So if you think of our, you know, the 300 robots growing shapes a little bit like cells in the body, well, that swarm as a whole is a soft robot and the individual hard robots are the cells. Uh, And so there's also a different way of thinking of soft robotics, uh, which is looking at moving components in a swarm and how they all fit together to form a bigger, softer robot. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think there's definitely crossovers. Yeah. Thanks so much, Dr. Sabine, and on, on behalf of IEEE Soft Robotics, I would like to thank you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you.